This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. This week, we welcome the owner of Jim Laird Strength and Conditioning and once roommate of Jim Wendler. The former powerlifter turned industry leader has some unconventional opinions about, well, just about everything. After some discussion on Jim's background, we get down and dirty with his fascinations of optimal posture, high versus low threshold environments, and the power of meditation. Learn how his life took some interesting turns and conscious reprioritizing after struggling with a major health setback. His brutally honest take on the experience and its possible link to a lifestyle of poor eating, excessive training, and steroid use is sobering to say the least. Next, we chat about his typical client. Working with nearly 90% females, Jim has developed a unique finesse to converting your average cardio fiend or triathlete into a competitive powerlifter. How does he do it? The secrets lie just moments away. Jim Laird is not your average coach. Our candid conversation revealed his unique approach to athlete assessments, vision for the future of our industry, and insight to what really matters in training and in life. This is episode 106. What's up, Power Athlete Nation? Welcome to another episode of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning and valuable resource in teaching you how to become the hammer and not the nail. Power Athlete Radio. This is Denny. Today we got John, Luke, Texan Cali, and Mr. Stephen Playtech, Prof Booty. And our guest is Jim Laird. How's it going, Jim? Thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you. I, I really appreciate having me on. I, I don't think I've ever been on a show with this many people at the same time. <laughs> uh, we're getting up there. We're getting up there. Um, we'll have a couple more join later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keep it, make it a variety. <laughs> Jim, uh, you know, Jim's uh, working as a strength and conditioning coach uh, since 97. You got about four years in Division One coaching, and you worked with athletes on NFL, MLB, LPGA, and uh, and gotta, go Andy, Andy has his own podcast. Andy uh, has his own podcast. Don't think we didn't know you're in direct competition with Power Athlete Radio. <laughs> Wait, I, haven't, I haven't done one in a while. So, <laughs> uh, well, you know what? Uh, we got to. We talked a little bit earlier. Um, you got a a really unique approach to um, to how you train your athletes. It kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, like Mike Metzer um, when uh-huh. he started training some of his clients after his bodybuilding days. He kind of took this less is more approach, sure, where he was training people maybe two times a week for like 30, 40 minutes, and they were making huge gains. 
So maybe we could just kind of start to show off a little bit about your history. Um, sure. You, you know, you had some uh, uh, some really great powerlifting experience, and then we can kind of go into like your approach and the whole uh, what we were talking about, like high threshold versus low threshold. Sounds good. Awesome. Um, yeah, I played. I grew up in Canada originally. I played everything from hockey, football, wrestling. Uh, for some reason, I'm five foot nine. I weigh about 250 pounds. And uh, for some reason, I wanted to play uh, football in the United States. And uh, my wrestling coach thought I was absolutely insane because uh, I went from competing with probably 40 people in the world to like you know three or four hundred thousand for a for a position that was you know dying. I was a I was a blocking fullback. And uh, so I went to JUCO in, in California, uh, in Redding, California, and uh, played there for a year. Then I transferred to Liberty, and that's when I kind of got into the – I'd always lifted weights and always done that sort of thing because I really enjoyed it. But that's when I kind of realized that I could actually make a career out of this because other than, like, guys like Charlie Francis in Canada, there just wasn't, you know, strength and conditioning. Um, and then I ended up going to Arizona where I met Jim Windler. Um and that's how I ended up here in Kentucky. But, you know, I, I met Jim, and Jim's kind of the guy that got me into powerlifting, and I competed for about oh, eight to ten years and, and total lead a number of times and had a really good time, learned a lot about that. Um, worked as an independent contractor at a gym here in Lexington and for till about 2008. Uh, worked with every kind of athlete you could imagine. Um, you know, mostly now I, I deal mainly with, uh, with normal everyday people, and I get to cherry-pick my athletes, but then I – in 2008, uh, I left the facility I was working at and decided to open my own place because I, I just saw a void. I just saw this uh, this need for, for basically teaching people the difference between performance and health. Um, and then also getting people to understand that if you want to train at a high level, if you want to compete at a high level, you have to put the rest and the nutrition and all of that and your general physical preparedness, that has to be your priority before you can start training really hard because there's a lot of people out there that are training really hard, but they don't take care of everything else. Um, so so a lot of times for me, it's it's getting people in and, and taking a look at where they're at and, and getting them to say, hey, you know, you really need to put more emphasis on sleep and nutrition and um, slowing down a little bit and chilling out and that way you can train harder. So that's pretty much, you know, my approach uh, as far as that goes. Did you see that uh, with like um, high-level athletes as well? This, this I got a go go go. Oh um, yeah. No, or is it just like the general pop? But I think it's a little bit of both. I, I think um, you know with the athletes, most of it is they've, especially now, like in the beginning when I first started, you know, when I went to Arizona, I thought hey, I'm going to this great school and we're going to be able to do all these cool things in the weight room. And, and I realized very quickly Brad Arnett was there. We had some of the best athletes like Gilbert Arenas and, uh, you know, Luke Walton and, and people like Jenny Finch, but they couldn't do anything in the weight room. Uh, they were they were very, very subpar. And so I, I realized, you know, hey, even the best athletes, they really don't need anything beyond the basics. And a lot of them are doing training that's way beyond their ability, um, you know, uh, it's forcing them into thresholds and strategies that are a little bit beyond where they're at. So a lot of times it's backing people back a little bit and starting where they are. You know, you got somebody who's, you know, hasn't even finished middle school and you're trying to get at their PhD. It, it's not really going to work real well. So um, a lot of times we, with that, you know, and, and with the, with the normal everyday people, most of the people that come to me are, are highly successful. They've got kids, they've got jobs, they're running around like a chicken with their head cut off. They're doing spinning class They're doing triathlons. And their, their goal is just to look good and feel better. They just want to look better and 
in a bathing suit and they want to be able to play with their kids and they're out there training like a professional athlete, uh, you know, doing all these different things. And it's like, hey, you know, we, you really don't need to do that much if you just want to look good and feel better. You know, it's lift some weights, walk, eat good food, get some sleep, take some more time for yourself, have some fun, enjoy yourself and relax. And so I, I, I thought I needed to re-educate because most of the times people, you know, most of the people that come to us, they've already gone to five or six different facilities. And every answer for people that are trying to lose fat is, well, we need to do more. We need to do more. We need to do more. And for most of the people, it's you need to take some of your time that you're, you're going to the gym and you need to cook your food and then you need to sleep and you need to do these other things. And then all of a sudden they get healthier and all of a sudden they lose body fat instead of trying to beat it off them, you know, with a stick, you know. Yeah. We, can I, yeah, can I yeah. ask you a question? Sure. Yeah, so I, I was just curious. I mean, we've talked with um, uh, some some sleep doctors and nutritionists mm -hmm. and people, you know, also in your realm of strength and conditioning, and one thing that we've found is that uh, there seems to be a society that we live in now that sort of glamorizes the idea of, of running yourself ragged, right? Yes. And And so we, we almost... Uh, we almost hold that up on a pedestal, like look at these CEOs or look at these high-end athletes, look at these guys who are doing three days and like, and, sure. and, and we, and what, number one is we, we really don't even know actually what they're doing. We just know what we're told that they're doing. And, and number two, uh, in, who was it, um, who was it, Herschel Walker who's, who ate one meal a day or something like that? Um, you know, just, you have all of these crazy, uh, almost extreme, um, I don't know, protocols that people think are, are going to make them successful. And and part of it is just like that That when we see that being held up on a pedestal, we think that if we're, if we're not doing those things or um, if you are spending your time sleeping those eight hours and not the four hours that the CEO is sleeping, then somehow you're not living up to your own potential. Um, so do you run into that kind of mentality with the athletes that you work with? Oh, absolutely. And I think it has a lot to do with Western philosophy. You know, you got the, the Protestant work ethic. You got to work harder. You got to work from nine in the morning till till you know the, the sun goes down. And then we look at outliers like Herschel Walker. You know, we try and compare ourselves to them. Uh, maybe John can, but you know, I definitely can't. Um, but you know, that was kind of a joke. But um, you know, it's it's funny because you know, Doctor uh, Kurt Parsley is a good friend of Rob Wolf's. Um, you, you know, he was a doctor yeah. for the Seals. And, we had them on the uh, these, these, these guys are the toughest of the toughest, and most of them end up in his office with a testosterone level of an eight-year-old girl, you know, because they've run themselves so hard into the ground, and they're so high threshold, they can't function in normal everyday life. So a lot of times we have people, they can't relax, and the only way they feel good is when they're killing themselves doing a spinning class. You know, so I think a lot of it is Western culture. And, uh, you know, if you teach people, and, and I ran into this too, I ran myself into the ground. That's one of the reasons I got into what I'm doing now is because my training was fairly smart. It was the fact that I wasn't sleeping. I was working too much and I ended up with ulcerative colitis and then I ended up finding out I was a celiac. So I think a lot of the autoimmune conditions, this is just my opinion, a lot of the autoimmune conditions and a lot of the disease states that we see today that we didn't see in the past are due to a lot of this like going hard lifestyle. And even people that are sedentary, you know, with iPhones and, and stress and the amount of stress we have now, we have much more stress now, man-created stress, than we have in the past. People that are even don't do much exercise are stressed out, you know. So you get people that are coming to their gym, they eat like shit, they don't sleep, and they're, they're basically, they're, 
their level of preparedness is zero, and then you throw them into whatever workout you put them into, boot camp, lose your fat in three weeks, and you bury most of the people. And then out of that, maybe two people get results, and of course they're on the testimonial page, but the other 80-90% of the people that you destroyed, oh, well, that's just the price you pay you know, for the sport you play. Yeah, so we had on uh, Dr. Kirk Parsley, and so I, I, I can definitely, um, you know, understand the sentiment that you're expressing because he, I mean, the guy is just, he's super smart, obviously knows uh, knows the extremes of that um, environment, especially with the Special Forces firsthand, and, uh, you know, if, if anybody has not listened to his TED Talk, get out there and do it, um, it's great. Um, yeah, so uh, I have a question for you. Um, Regarding like the the type of population that you work with on a daily basis, what is what what is that like? I mean, what is your what does your day look like? Um, generally, I work with ninety percent of my clients are female, and uh, basically, I, I basically trick most of them from from stopping running marathons and doing triathlons into switching into more of a strength training approach. Um, and then I basically I'm, I'm lucky enough that my business is very healthy on that end, and I can pick and choose the athletes I want to work with. So an athlete comes to me, I basically interview them, and I basically I'm like, ah, I want to work with you, or I don't. So I'm very lucky on that end that I haven't built my business around training athletes because around t uh, today, you know, so many of the high schools have their own coaches. It's all year round sports. It's really hard to get a kid for enough time to actually do anything with them to make kind of a difference. You're mostly doing damage control. Uh, I have a group of ladies, I've got about 17 ladies getting ready for a meet um, here in, a, in the end of June. Uh, they're just normal women that just, I kind of tricked, we have a basic, a general class that we do that basically is basics and strength training. And then the ones that gravitate more towards deadlifts and stuff like that, I'm like, hey, why don't we, uh, had about four or five of them about four years ago or three years ago decide they want to do a powerlifting meet. And it's just kind of gone viral since then. Uh, so we do two meets a year, and we train maybe, you know, 20 weeks a year for powerlifting, and the rest of the time it's more athletic type stuff. And we do that like twice a year, so we got that in June. Um, but today, you know, my busy days are Tuesday, Thursday. Tuesday, Thursdays I work from 6.30 in the morning until about noon. And then I have a break from noon to 3, 3.30, and then I work from 3.30 to about 7. I work in the evenings every night, and then I have a half-day Saturday. Um, so I'm working with, you know, today I've already trained, you know, what most people would train in a full day. I've already worked with uh, this morning. We have a class in the morning, and then we have a, I work in groups of like four to six throughout the day. So, you know, I'm working with, and that's what I like it. I mean, that's how I started as a strength coach at Arizona. We were working with 100 kids at a time. At Liberty, heck, we had to work with every team. In the, same with Arizona. When I was there, uh, there was only like four or five coaches and uh, at Liberty, there was three of us. So, you know, I worked with every sports team from six in the morning till six at night. And that's probably one of the reasons I crashed and burned because I'm addicted to, 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 to working so hard. But uh, I've had to put a lot of effort into meditation and slowing down for myself to keep myself healthy. But, you know, it's people don't understand the amount of energy that it requires to be a good coach because you have to be so attentive and you have to actually care about the people you're training. Um, and, and that just wears you out. And I'm very lucky. I have some amazing staff. It's taken me about five years to get some staff that I really, really enjoy. And they allow me to have some, some, some much needed days off where I can go fishing and do stuff like that and chill out and, and relax. So you are a very busy man. And I will, uh, admittedly tell you that I completely baited you into that question because upon my research, uh, of you, I noticed that you almost exclusively work with babes and that 
that definitely piqued my interest, and uh, I was just, you know, wondered why you gravitated towards the fairer sex um, in, in terms of uh, specifically powerlifting and, and training um, female athletes. Well, um, one, they're easily coachable. Um, two, they get really quick results if you do real work with them and you. So set you can just like tell them what to do, basically, because yeah, they, they they don't have they don't have an ego. I don't have to act like a like a silverback gorilla. Right. Um, you know, uh, they love, they just, they really, they do really well in mentoring. And I do really well with athletes that want to mentor. I don't want to be one of those coaches that's a screaming kind of have to motivate kind of person. I want to be more of a guide and a teacher. So that's more of my coaching style. And they bring their friends. Like if you get results, they bring their friends in. Um, and then they're the most neglected uh, group out there. Um, it's one of the, you know, one of the reasons I've done some seminars in the past exclusively on training women because no one has really, all the information out there is mostly for training men. And so uh, it just kind of was a perfect, a perfect fit with my coaching style. And then uh, it just was a no competition. I mean, I, I had a, a coach I was talking to yesterday, actually, who was um, having, who's really struggling. He was like, I'm trying to get this football team for four years and this wrestling team won't work with me. And I'm like, dude, like, you know how many girls soccer teams there are in your town? I guarantee if you go to the girls soccer team and you offer to work with them, they'll, they, they'd love it. You know, it's like, well, I never thought of that. I'm like, yeah, there's, you know, female athletes are probably the most neglected athlete there is. And guess what? Just some really simple strength training, some carries, some prowler pushes. And you can take a woman and make them take them from one of the slowest girls on the team to one of the faster, faster girls on the team with little to low work at all. And you can't do that with a guy, you know, Plus injury you know prevention. Or go ahead, Tex. I was going to say plus the injury prevention just with this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the confidence the part of it too. Yeah. Like this, what, what strength training does and getting women stronger, what it does for their confidence and their, and their self-worth and self-esteem is, is absolutely unprecedented. So let me ask you this. I mean, coaching and cueing and temperament and all that aside and the fact that they mm -hmm. bring their friends and the fact that they, it makes them feel strong and they get stronger – Physiologically, uh, do you train the women differently to optimize their their time with you, right? Uh, I mean, from a strength training perspective, is there anything different you're doing um, to drive adaptation in them that you maybe would not do for a man? I probably work at a higher percentage more often. Um, they can okay. handle a little bit higher percentages once they've trained for a while. Of course, you know, the first year or two, anything works, you know, so I try and... Uh, uh, put, you know, lay down good movement patterns and things like that, but they can handle more volume more often. Their nervous system doesn't take the beating that a guy's does. So you can do more things with them more often. Um, and then I make sure I don't train like for powerlifting for too long because the girls I train don't want to be powerlifters. They just like doing meets for fun. And so, I mean, even though we got 10 girls that pull over 300 pounds, um, they don't, so after about 10 to 12 weeks of training or powerlifting, they really need to get away from that. So we get into some athletic stuff. We start, you know, throwing med balls and doing sprints and, and doing some different things to kind of pull them away from that because most women after about 10 to 12 weeks of powerlifting, they kind of start feeling a little, they just kind of start feeling blocky. That would be my, that would be my assessment. And so we pull them away from that and then we get away from that for about four to, you know, like six to eight weeks and then we go right back into training for a meet again. So that that would be the thing that uh, that would make that make it different. Um, they're 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 really you know really a joy to train, uh, and the guys that I train are a little different too. They're more teachable. It's there's they don't most of the guys I train don't have the huge ego that most guys do.
Yeah, I mean, even just, uh, I mean, I, I know that it sounds like the, the girls are doing it as almost like a hobby, and even yes. just kind of visiting your website and, and reading through some of your philosophies and, and getting an idea for the culture that, that your um, your coaching style is like um, or your gym is like, it, it seems to me that it's uh, much more conducive to newer people or people who are like dipping a toe in and then trying to excel in the sport as opposed sure. to like when you go to, I mean, ourselves, I can only throw us into like a, a very like cliche category of like skull and crossbones type thing where you go to a website yeah. and it's all black and it's like if your total isn't this, 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 you can't enter this site go right. fucking kill yourself, you know? So, <laughs> um, so I think, I think like even from like a business standpoint and just from sort of like a social responsibility standpoint, I think it's awesome that you're making this sport accessible to people who otherwise would have the wrong interpretation of it. It's not all sure. cut off jeans and fucking flannel shirts, although there's nothing wrong with that. It's, no. you know, it's for, it's can be for everyone. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the reasons I did it is to show that women can like you, like you can play tennis and not compete at Wimbledon, you know? So that's one of the reasons we go to drug tested meets. We go to drug free meets. Cause I, I one, I want to kind of keep the not even though I competed in, in open meets and, you know, I smashed my head into the bar and I sniffed ammonia caps and all that kind of stuff. Um, I want to keep them away from that side of the sport, you know, the dark side of the sport, which I'm perfectly fine with. If people want to do that stuff, that's their business. Um, but for them, I want to show women that, Hey, instead of going out and running a triathlon, you can do this powerlifting and it's going to make you look to be the best version of you. It's going to help you with bone density. It's going to help you with confidence. You're only going to have to train like three days a week. Um, you're not, it, it's going to help you with anti-aging. You're not going to run your body into the ground. Cause most of the women I see that come in are marathon runners and triathletes. It's like, Whoa, it's like somebody hit the fast forward button on the aging button, you know? And so it just giving women a different option of like, Hey, you can do this and you don't have to, you can work within your means and, you know, it, the first couple meets they do, you know, they're working well within their means. I'm giving them a weight they can handle very, very easily. Um, you know, and then once they've done a few meets, then we can start pushing things a little bit. But, um, you know, and we've got, they're, they're very competitive, don't get me wrong, but it's just a different kind of outlook. We're doing it more for, for, the, for the fun of the sport and for the camaraderie. I mean, there's nothing better than walking into a powerlifting meet with like 17 women. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we go, they hit an outlet mall on the way up and then we go all go out to eat after. I mean, it's a lot of fun. You know, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. I, I really enjoy it. And, uh, it's, uh, it's neat. It's, um, you know, some people would kind of be like, oh dude, that you've sold out. Well, that's cool. I'd like my life. So I'm fine. Yeah, that. that's great. Sorry to hijack this, uh, template, Denny, like if you want to, if I derailed us temporarily. I just have a, a quick question. Jim's been mentioning some some great observations that he's learned throughout his coaching career. I just want to go back to when you first got into it and at the college level. And sure. curious, I know we we talked a little bit about this at the the summit, just kind of mm -hmm. over over dinner. Yes. But uh, just some kind of quick observations that you've learned and just held on to, kind of like that Gilbert Arenas, where not the best athlete, he's not the best in the weight room, but just some other observations that you've held on to. Um, yeah, like Windler told me, you know, early on, uh, be the best beginner coach possible. Cause honestly, most people don't have the dedication. Most people don't have the time. Um, uh, and most people never take it past really the beginner level. You know, I, I honestly, this is going to sound terrible, but you know, I only use probably 20 to 30% of my knowledge base on a daily basis because most people that come to me just don't have 
Um, even like Scott Downs, who I worked with, uh, who just retired re recently, 14 years of the majors. I got him just after his, uh, Tommy John. I worked with him for 10 years. You know, I only got him for three to four months, like three months in the off season, and it was just getting him back to baseline so he could survive the next year. You know, so it wasn't, you know, by the end of it, we could do some pretty cool stuff to help him keep his velocity up and stuff. But, you know, you really don't get to work with anybody for the most part. There are exceptions to that. I've got a pretty high MMA guy that I work with who's pretty, pretty freaky. I've been working with for four years who has an awesome aerobic engine uh, that we can do some really cool stuff with. But, you know, for the most part, especially when you're dealing with athletes that, you know, our system is so broken in this country. We don't have free play anymore. Kids don't do gymnastics. They don't move really well. So a lot of the stuff I'm doing with these kids is basic, basic phys ed stuff. It's not really anything extraordinary because they haven't learned these things and we have to back up and kind of go, Hey, well, you know, you're doing this and this and this, but eh, you probably need to be doing this and this. Um, so a lot of this is just being the best beginner coach possible and being the best teacher possible because very rarely do I run into anybody where I really have to like study and stretch my knowledge base. I know it sounds kind of terrible, but uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's the truth. I mean, most of the people that you're going to walk through your door as a strength coach are remedial. I had a guy on the other day that I was talking to, he's like, I want to train athletes. And I'm like, okay, dude, but um, good luck with that. You know, it's like, you're not going to have, there's maybe, you know, a handful in Lexington, there's a handful of professional athletes and most of them aren't even here year round. Dude, it's so true. But haven't you heard everyone's an athlete now? So it's okay. Yeah, every, yeah. <laughs> and most, and most of them are motor morons too. Um, there's a guy, Mark, Mark Hill was a strength coach in Kentucky when Windler was there and he had one of the most epic quotes of all time. You can only polish a turd so much. Oh my God. It's, 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 uh, it's still, it's still a turd. You know, it's uh, it's true. What I just I wanted to just kind of like agree with you because I, you know, it is true. We we spend a lot of time expanding our knowledge base and being ready for, uh, you know, I think when <laughs> when we dive into these conversations on the podcast is really the the time that we get to kind of nerd out the most and um, explore conversations like at at a summit or at a seminar. That's when you really get to explore. Um, you know, dive deep within within different training philosophies and methodologies, but but yeah, I mean, if you can master the basics as a beginner coach, that's going to get you pretty fucking far um, from a business standpoint and just from an effectiveness standpoint. Absolutely, I, I agree completely. You know, I know you guys wanted to talk a little bit about the high threshold stuff, and you know, a number of years ago, I started uh, working with a guy named Bill Hartman and Mike Robertson up in Indianapolis, and they really kind of changed my perspective on training and, you know, people have different strategies for, for doing movements. And so one of the things that happens when you, when someone goes into a movement, they're not really prepared to do, or the body basically will find ways to do things. And I think this is one of the reasons we're seeing so many like elbow injuries and ACL injuries. One of these, these compensation patterns is, is extension. Okay. So, you know, somebody's hard extended in a squat or, you know, they're moving, uh, or they're just, what happens is, is, is you end up with this scissor, this scissor position where people's ribs are flared. They're in this bad position and they start breathing through their neck and they get tight traps and scalenes and all these sort of things. And we're seeing this a ton, especially with young kids. They, they've never played, they, they don't know how to move really well, or people even just walking around, they're using the survival, like extension is like a survival strategy to get stability they're using this high threshold strategy to do very, very low level things like putting someone in a bird dog on the floor. They're flexing their whole body because they just don't have this low level stability. 
And we're seeing kids that, you know, have been trained really, really hard or 15, 16, and they can't stand on one foot. You know, you, and, um, you know, so we do a basic assessment here. We do like an FMS. And the only reason we do an FMS is just to see if we have pain. And if we have pain, we have a physical therapist here that we send them to. Or if I have someone who's a high-level athlete, they get assessed by the PT as well. But we're seeing, uh, my, my assessment is basically how they move, how they skip, you know, what they can do. But I'm seeing people, especially kids, they're having to use these high-threshold emergency strategies to stand on one foot. You know, and, and that's okay if you're going into a high-threshold strategy like extension, pulling a world record on the deadlift, or if that's part of your sport, like if you're an Olympic lifter and you're doing the snatch and you're jacking your head back to get, you know, to, to do the snatch, that's perfectly fine. But can we shut that strategy off so it doesn't become your only strategy? Because the last thing you want to do is walk around jammed in extension all day, and that's, that's a lot of what we see. Um, you know, so a lot of the stuff we're doing uh, with our breathing and our resets is pulling people out of that extension because if you're stuck in extension all day and you don't have that rib cage lined up with the belly button, you can't breathe very effectively. All of a sudden you have to start using your neck and your traps and your scalenes and, and everything else to breathe, which isn't as efficient as using your diaphragm as your main breather. Um, and then people don't recover, you know, and it's also a lot harder on the nervous system when you're using these really high threshold, you know, if you're doing a body weight squat and you have to throw your head back and go into extension, that's going to be a lot harder on you orthopedically and neurologically in the long run. So that's something that's kind of changed my perspective as time has gone on about, hey, that person's really, really strong, but how are they getting that strength? That I'm, I'm really worried about, hey, how is that person getting that stability or getting that strength? Is it something that's doable over the long term or is it just something that's going to, you know, because if you're squatting in hard extension, it might be great if you're in a multi-power, you know, apply powerlifting meet where you don't have to go to parallel, but if you're a raw squatter, uh, and you have to go deep, that's going to really take a, your knees and your, your, your hips and everything else are going to take a beating because you're in a really bad position. And the same thing for overhead athletes. If you're stuck in extension, you're a pitcher, you're going to be in a bad position and you're going to have a hard time with your elbow. Can you talk a little bit about um, meditation and the role that you feel it plays in either recovery or um, kind of just the training matrix of an athlete? Yeah, absolutely. Like shutting off is so important. Before we dive into Jim's meditative practices, Power Athlete HQ would like to take a moment to kindly remind you to eat the week. What does eat the week mean? Not a call for cannibalism, but a mindset to dominate. Total domination, not only of your competitors, but of yourself. No one said it'd be easy. Conflict crafts character. Devour weakness, doubt, fear, and feeble excuses. Consume them before they consume you. Eat the weak. To purchase your Eat the Weak shirt now, go to shop.powerathletehq.com. Now back to the show. You know, they can't shut off that voice in their head. And I think a lot of people's root issues as far as like, you know, most people that are have weight issues have some sort of underlying psychological issue from what I've found. Uh, it sounds terrible, but it's true. And, and a lot of people are afraid to sit still because they don't have to deal with reality. So I think getting quiet and meditating, uh, in my opinion, is kind of like the body's reset. It's kind of like resetting your hard drive and kind of cleaning things out. It's scary because I remember when I first started trying to meditate, I literally, like I was there for a minute and it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life just to sit still. 
and, and now I can do it for a couple hours. Uh, you know, I even go up and use a float tank, but the, the amount of insight and the amount of just peace that I have when I do that, and if I'm on my meditation, and if I'm taking care of myself, I can come into the gym and I can train really, really hard. Um, uh, you have a float tank at your gym? I don't. I have to drive an hour and a half to get one, uh, to do one. Uh, uh -huh. I wish I had a float tank. There, in Kentucky, you have to have a public pool permit to get a, uh, say that ten times, a public pool permit <laughs> to get a uh, float tank. So I would love to get one here at the gym. If there's any venture capitalists listening right now that are in <laughs> Lexington, I would love to, for you to put a float tank in my gym and we can take the city on and find a way to get a float tank here. So, but I, I drive an hour and a half right now to go to one. It's it's uh, exclusively for the purposes of like meditation. Is that correct? It's meditation on steroids. Yes. Dude, <laughs> I I have been trying to get Power Athlete HQ to get a meditation tank for so long, and they say they don't have the budget for it, but uh, but it yeah, is. Kelly, Kelly, I thought yeah. that's what you were quoting. Kelly, what did we miss? We were installing a meditation tank in the gym. <laughs> <laughs> I just moved, and so now you guys just throw one in there. Uh, oh, I am I am fascinated with these things. So you have experienced the meditation tank. And uh, like my first question is, where, how did you come to find that meditation was going to be such a big component to recovery? Uh, what, did you come on that like on your own or did someone recommend it? And number two, how, what is it like to be in one of those like the, those meditation tanks? Well, when I first Basically, I ran myself into the ground for like eight years, you know, like ephedra tablets, uh, working long hours, working second jobs because I wouldn't uh, curtail my spending. And I basically hit a wall. I got in a car wreck, and then about four weeks later, I ended up with ulcerative colitis, and I was always bleeding to death. And going to the bathroom every three hours and having blood come out of your ass is not – it's a very quick wake-up call to get you kind of going in the right direction. And I started listening to Rob Wolf. I started listening to – uh, a couple different shows, and I listened to a guy named Paul Check, and a lot of people think Paul's kind of fruity, um, but Paul was the first person that got it into my head. Like, you know, I was always smart, like telling my clients you need to rest and all that, but I didn't really understand what rest was. Hey, Jim, you know? what, uh, just to take a step back, uh, yeah. when you would go number two and look in the toilet, what, did you see blood? Like, what was your reaction? Oh, it's, my reaction was like, holy shit, and I didn't eat any beets, you know? Yeah, well, it was like, was it I like mean, did I have a beet smoothie for lunch? Pretty pretty much. I mean, it was a, probably one of the scariest things I've ever encountered. And I mean, you once you you go you go to you try to sleep and it literally every 2 hours, every 15 minutes, 2 hours you're getting up and going to the bathroom. And it's it's just, dude, it is I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. And uh, you know, they wanted to do surgery on me and I refused. I did some research. I actually got my my colitis under control through meditation. Nicotine gum, believe it or not, nicotine is 85% effective in, in, in calming a uh, colitis flare-up. It's on PubMed. That's where I found it. Is that why Rob um, Wolf is always on the nicotine gum? He's always got a sore ass? Well, I guess. Well, I think Rob does it because he's a, he's a stimulant junkie like I am, and that's one of the safest stimulants there is, is nicotine. So, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it keeps both of us from, uh, from, from driving. From Rob going down his road of uh, destruction with uh, cocaine and hookers that he's always talking yeah, about. Yeah, ex exactly. Uh, so it's kind of a managing uh, a, a lesser of evil stress management uh, uh, strategy, I guess you might say. So I basically started looking out, you know, for information. I started doing a lot of reading, and I was like, I did not want to have a colostomy bag at, you know, I don't know how old was I? In my early 30s, I was like, I'd rather die. 
Um, that might offend some people, but that's cool. I can go with that. But, um, you know, so I started looking out and I listened to a guy named Paul Check, and he was talking about how the harder you work, the more you need to work in. And he was talking about doing Tai Chi and things like that so that you can recover from your training. What I was doing was just digging the hole deeper and overreaching and overreaching. And because I was taking some performance enhancing supplements <clears throat> at the time, um, I could really overreach. And, and, uh, you know, and that's something I think too, that's not very transparent in the fitness industry is the amount of people that are using performance enhancing drugs and not being honest about it. And they're, you know, I'm training this and I'm doing that, but you know, the normal everyday people don't realize that most, a lot of them are using drugs to do it. And, you know, even though I was on drugs, you know, my digestion was the weak thing that went. And so I had been pushing myself and, you know, not sleeping enough and working too hard. And eventually that's what gave out on me. You know, it's just like a car. If you drive three different cars at, at Redline for an hour, you know, the Honda Civic might blow a rod or maybe the, you know, the tire blows up, the, the Audi's going to, something else is going to blow up and the Ferrari, something else is going to blow up. So, and the Ferrari might not blow up because it's designed to drive really hard. You're just going to have to replace the brakes and tires, you know, and that's expensive. But, you know, so the, my digestion is what went bad in me. Bad nutrition. I was trying to, you know, I was at the time in powerlifting, getting, going up a weight class was the answer to getting stronger. And I was trying to get up, you know, over 300 pounds and I was eating, you know, three or four pizzas a week and, you know, just crazy stuff. And, and that's when everything came off the rails. And, um, you know, when you have that kind of slap in the face, sickness is a wonderful teacher and it made me get really serious really fast. And I realized I had this, you know, I was spinning in my mind all the time and, you know, Paul Check talked about meditation. So I started, I sat down with an app called Brainwave and I put it on calm reflection, calm relaxation. I started with one minute of just sitting quietly listening to this binaural beat stuff and it just about killed me. And um, I slowly started figuring it out that, you know, I can't be driving around to Megadeth or, or I hate God or whatever else I'm listening to all the time. And that I was an adrenaline junkie and I needed to learn how to chill out. I needed to go fishing more and I needed to, to, to do some things to put gas back in the tank. And it took me a long time to dig out of that hole and I still struggle with it. You know, being a gym owner, it's, it's, it's hard to, to, uh, to get that rest in. But that's where I realized that, you know, the more I meditated, the better job I did at work, the better, more pleasant person I was to be around. Um, the less grudges I held, the more I was able to like forgive people and move on and not hold grudges. I think that's resentment is something that a lot of you probably let it this out later, but you know, resentment is something that a lot of people struggle with and that, you know, being angry with someone only, you really only hurt yourself. So meditation showed me a lot of that stuff and helped me kind of get through that point in my life where I could, you know, get healthy again and start going in the right direction. That's great. Um, and, and you experienced, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm stuck on this and I promise if you, you can just give me like a brief answer, but you experienced, uh, the, the old, uh, meditation tank and I mean, it changed your world in terms of like, it's, it's sensory deprivation essentially. Yes. And, and you get to, uh, are you literally like, uh, floating, right? It's like, it's yes. just, you're, you're sort of like at this ambient, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it literally, it's like the, I, you know, I can put my arms above my head in a full range of motion. My rib cage is lined up perfectly with my belly button. I can breathe perfectly. Um, you know, it's perfectly dark. So it's like, you know, because I'm so on all the time coaching, it's the complete opposite. It's like being in a cave. And I wouldn't recommend it for someone who's just starting to learn how to meditate because you literally will freak out the first time you go in there because you'll be just panicking because you're not used to being silent and there's no phone and all that stuff, but it's basically taking your meditation practice to the next level. 
and it you know decompresses your spine and all that magnesium get you know gets soaked into your body so that you get that big magnesium dose and most people are magnesium deficient so it's a really awesome experience for people that have started meditating and want to take it to kind of the next level um, and and just being able to let go and just totally let go of everything it's a very freeing and um, awesome experience once you get used to it the first time it usually takes you about a half an hour to settle down but I literally like get in the tank and I'm usually in for 90 minutes and I literally just wake up like five minutes before I'm supposed to get out and it doesn't even feel like I've been in there at all um, it, it that's that's how awesome it is and that's it's amazing um, yeah it is and if you can relax and get into it it's it's completely it's it's like nothing I've ever done before and I, I highly recommend people at least try it once I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about assessing athletes a little bit further. I know that you mentioned FMS as being one of your screening tools for pain. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have anything that you have sort of developed over time that is either unique to your training facility or things that you've incorporated or incorporated from other coaches that you like to use to assess limiting factors within the athletes? I know that you talked uh, on your po- podcast with Dan John, and when we had him on, he mentioned that he likes to use farmer carries uh, yeah. as, as a way to assess athletes and tensile mm-hmm. strength and just it's just kind of a you know a low-hanging fruit for somebody who, who doesn't have any technical experience awesome yeah it's, it's very true that's a great assessment tool and I, I like to keep it simple like Dan John I use bear crawl I'll get people in a bear crawl and I'll tell them that they have a glass of water on their butt and I'll have them crawl five yards back and forth about six to eight times and that tells me they're basically their cardiovascular condition, their ability to control their core, uh, skipping. And most people, most of the kids that come in here can't skip. I want to see toe touch if they can touch their toes without hyperextending their knees. Or they're like, look, I can touch my toes, but their knees are bent backwards. It's like, yeah, big fail. You know, so, you know, stuff like that. And, uh, and I mean, honestly, it, just from doing this for so many years, most of the athletes are at such a low level and their work capacity is so terrible that, I just know that they're going to suck when they come in. I know that sounds terrible, but it's 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 true. I, um, I like that you said skipping because we use that at the CrossFit Football Seminar quite a bit, and I will tell you what, uh, it is ridiculous. The yeah. uh, the the ipsilateral movement that we see, uh, same side arm, same side leg going up, and just. Yeah. Total, like people not even, not even like, not even knowing how or what a skip is, or not being able to skip in this in a straight line. Or they're so they're so tight while they're doing it. They're so flexed. It's like somebody's got like a like a Bambi there in front of them. Yeah. And they're like, we're gonna shoot Bambi unless you skip perfectly, and they're just completely locked up. Like mechanical. Yeah. I mean, it's it's they're using like that high threshold strategy to do something that should be done totally relaxed. Yeah. You should be able to skip. You should be able to like stand on one foot without having to clench your teeth and go into extension. So that that's basically what what we're looking at. We're looking at how they breathe. Are they coming in and they're like breathing through their neck? Is there you know are they have that big rib flare? We're looking for that. Uh, we're looking for zone of apposition, which is where the rib cage and the belly button line up. If they're stuck in extension, they got a big rib flare. That means we're going to have to do some exhale drills and get that down. Uh, to get their core activated, because you got someone that's jammed into extension, they're going to be using their spine for everything. We see a lot of kids that come in getting hurt weightlifting at schools because they load their load them up way too early, and they're jamming into extension to get their spine either because their their coach told them that's what they needed to do from powerlifting, or they just don't have a core, so they're using anything they can to get that to get that stability. 
When you talk about um, being an extension too, you're, are you specifically, when you said the zone of opposition, and mm -hmm. I assume you're referring to what can also be referred to as like a pelvic tilt. Um, yeah, anterior pelvic tilt, yes. Yeah, okay. We call you that still, cross can, girl butt. Yeah, yeah. You can still not have anterior pelvic tilt and still have rib flare. Yeah, if okay. If you want to look into this more, look into the Postural Restoration Institute. Mm -hmm. uh, they do a lot of stuff with... Uh, it, it's really in depth, and the zone of apposition is the main thing I look at: rib cage and belly button together. Most people can't pull their belly button up, and then most people's ribs are—they're kind of stuck up. They call rib flare, and they can't exhale. So when you can't exhale, you're pretty much stuck in this state of inhalation, which is like super high alert state all the time. And in, in case somebody is not familiar with uh, what sort of risk that poses or even performance inhibition that poses. Can you just touch on for any moron out there who, who's not sure whether this is like, you know, um, going to be uh, mm. a component, whether it's in training or on field, what what sure. risk does that play? Well, if you're stuck in real bad extension, you know, like some, some athletes are going to have extension. That's fine. We just want to make sure we don't push them further down that path. Like if Hussein Bolt comes to me, of course he's going to have interior tilt. Most sprinters do. Um, I'm not going to like fix his posture unless he has pain. Uh, I'm not going to start doing agility work with Hussein Bolt. Like if I did agility work with Hussein Bolt, I would slow him down because he's built for a highly specialized activity, the 100 meter dash straight ahead as fast as possible. Um, if you've got people that are beginners especially and they're already stuck in extension and then you load them and they're using that extension, basically you end up jamming your spine together and over time you're going to have a higher risk of you know, disc injuries, things like that. You're going to be in a bad position going overhead. You're going to be using that spine when you're going overhead instead of using your entire core as a unit. So you're going to increase your risk of, of, of disc injury or going overhead. You're also going to put your shoulder in a really bad position. Um, we, you know, we get pitchers that don't have any, any internal rotation and it's because they're, when you lay them on the ground, their low back is two inches off the floor. You know, they're like arched because that's how they've compensated. So all of a sudden you get them to, to blow their ribs down and exhale and do some different drills. All of a sudden they've got full internal rotation and we haven't stretched the thing. So a lot of it is just good position or bad position. If you're in a bad position, uh, you're, you're, you're basically, and especially athletes that are really extended, like you know, you're not going to be able to get an athletic position in a in very easily if you're really stuck in extension. So yeah. you want to make sure that we don't drive people down that path. And if I have someone who is in extension and and it, and it's not causing them any problems, I'm going to do more things like front squats and things like that. So I don't drive them into extension even more. You know, I don't want to go so far down that path that that it it, it leads to dysfunction. And that and that really, as a strength coach, with you're dealing with elite level athletes, it's really all about managing dysfunction. Because if I fix a baseball player and I make his posture normal, he's not going to be able to throw baseball. You know, right. So it's about keeping him from going so far down that road that he ends up with pain or dysfunction uh, with, without eliminating his performance. It's kind of like working with a high-level athlete is kind of like riding, walking a tightrope. You know, it's like you're, you know, you're kind of walking on that rope and you're hoping that you don't fall off. That's kind of how it works. And then, you know, with the, with the beginner people, we want them to be in a good position in that rib cage and belly button together. You know, with a circumferential expansion is the most efficient way the core works. And that's what's going to give you the most core activation, and that's going to protect your back. And so, um, and then looking into the stuff like, you know, like Stuart McGill 
talks a lot about that too, the circumferential expansion. And then realizing that certain athletes have certain limitations and certain things that make them better at certain sports. If you get on YouTube, you can look at Stuart Mediol talk about different types of hips. You know, certain hips are made for squatting, certain hips are not made for squatting, and certain hips are made for going back and forth really fast, and certain hips are made for explosive rotation. Um, you know, so looking at people and going, well, you know, this is the sport they pick, but yeah, it doesn't really look like it's a good fit for them. And I think that's one of the big problems today too, is parents are trying to put kids into a specific sport at four and five without really realizing what they're going to develop into later on. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is all, uh, music to our ears. This is all not news, hopefully to anybody who listens to the show. You're uh, on point with a lot of our philosophies. And, um, I did want to ask you, um, you know, can you remember a time in your 15-year coaching experience where you fucked something up, where you've uh, you've had some issues with an athlete, and you you we've all had learning experiences, but we all try to like learn from each other. And can you think of any m mistakes that you've made that you've learned from over time? I think being a little too aggressive in the beginning. You know, mm -hmm. I, as I've gotten older, I've realized that how little you have to do to get people better especially if you can take, you know, convince them to take care of themselves outside the gym. And then, of course, when I first started uh, strength training, you know, the arch was it. You know, you arched for everything. You arched on the bench. You got that hard arch in your deadlift. You hard arched on the squat. And, you know, that's the way I taught things in the, the beginning of my career. And now I'm realizing, holy shit, that, you know, not only does that lead to back issues, but hip dysfunction and knee problems and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, you do the best you can with the information you have at the time and, and you learn and, and you look at new things and you go, how does that fit into my worldview? And, you know, that was a hard pill to swallow about five or six years ago that a lot of the stuff that I was teaching people early on in my career was not optimal. Yeah. Where do you see, um, just out of curiosity, where do you see uh, strength and conditioning going? I mean, we've seen a lot of trends come in and out. Mm -hmm. um, as far as I, I'm concerned, there are still over 100,000 certified jazzercise instructors, uh, according to my research, <laughs> which is legitimate. Um, but I mean, just like not to make a joke, but there's a, there's a lot of trends in fitness. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if you think that uh, if there's one on the horizon or, you know, where's your practice going? Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of like to be in the middle of the road. You know, I don't want to be too far on either extreme, but I think we've gone down this intensity um, exercise more. All you need to do is be more active. I think we've gone down that path of very long, you know, biggest loser, CrossFit, um, and people, a lot of people are not getting, you know, we still have more, you know, obesity is going up, all these sort of things. People are exercising more and things just aren't happening. So I think there's a big movement now for people taking care of themselves, meditation, that sort of thing. I think the pendulum is going to swing back the other way, but it's going to swing way too far. You know, all of a sudden, you know, stress is something we need, right? You know, I, I talk to people about stress all the time, but without stress, we don't adapt. Uh, as a strength coach, you're a stress management specialist. You're basically trying to figure out how much stress is necessary to make this person adapt or how much lack of stress is necessary to get this person to adapt. You know, if you want to supercompensate somebody or if you want to, you know, you know, peak somebody, you have to beat them up a little bit and then back off. But I think we, you know, people are starting to talk about stress and how stress and all these different things. I think it's going to swing back the other way where people are going to start basically, you know, hey, we don't need to train hard. We don't need to do all these things. It's going to go back the other direction. And then, you know, eventually it'll swing back. And I always try to be somewhere 
in the middle. I mean, all our clients train hard. They train within their ability. They train with good movement. That's what I've always done to the best of my knowledge. And over time, I've improved things. But I think you're going to see, like, CrossFit gyms, if they're going to survive, they're going to have to have, like, a beginner pro, like a program. And basically, when you come in and say, okay, I'm here. I want to train. Um, what is your goal? Is your goal to look good and feel good? Well, here's your program. Is your goal to be in the CrossFit games? Okay, well, we need to assess you first. Then we see you see if you move well. And then we can train you for the games, you know, based on where your weaknesses, instead of just kind of throwing everybody into the, you know, let's, we're just going to come out and everybody's going to do uh, double unders and everybody's going to run around the building and jump on a box a hundred times. So and the people that are going to succeed are going to basically adapt their training to who they're training. Uh, because what's happened is, is the level of preparedness of the population has gone down dramatically and the, the intensity and the, and the, the, uh, the, the training because of the internet has gone through the ceiling. I mean, people are trying to do things that are just, you know, insane uh, when they don't have any base level. So the coaches that can come down, bring the level of coaching down to the level of the people where they're at, and then, you know, starting there and then building that base and foundation, then being able to adjust their training as that wave goes up and down um, according to where the person is and what's going on in their life, those are the people that are going to succeed in the long run. Do you see the dad bod fad sticking around? Oh, dude, I, I, I don't know. It, it, our society is so weird. You know, it, it, it's, it's uh, I don't know. It's it, it, We tend to normalize dysfunction. So I, I, I hope that, I hope for my, you know, just for the sake of the country that people get back to independence, self-care, self-responsibility. Uh, I highly doubt it. But, you know, people get back to taking care of themselves and, and doing what's right for them. Um I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I hope so. I hope, I hope people don't, don't buy into stuff like that and just be the healthiest version of themselves that they can be. Eat good food, sleep. You know, um, you know, who cares what men's health think is the best body, or who cares what Victoria's Secret thinks is the best body? You know, be the healthiest version of yourself and let the the chips fall where they may. Um, like that's a nasty question. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, no, Jim. So you said a couple things that have really piqued my interest. One is you said. Uh, everybody who walks through your door is a mess. And then uh, later in the conversation, you said something about parents uh, putting their children into sports that they uh, later might not develop well uh, suited they're for. Just not, they're just not well adapted for. They're just not well adapted for, yeah. Um, like and me trying so, to play in the NBA. Oh, yeah, or, or me trying to do pretty much anything that involves physical activity. But um, uh, so what are parents to do then uh, in terms of, assessing young children. So I'm a, I'm a parent of a four-year-old, extremely active boy, yeah. uh, and he's playing stuff. And one of the things I try to do constantly is not have him sit down, right? Because all the sure. evidence on sitting is like it just crushes you. Try to get him to move. Try mm -hmm. to get him to move properly. But what can the average sort of uh, the average parent do to help their kids not be as fucked up as the people who walk through your door? Let them play. Get them outside. Let them make mistakes. Let them fall off stuff. Um, you know, Give them the ability to go out and learn on their own. Put them in as many sports as possible. Put them in gymnastics, not competitive gymnastics, but just general play gymnastics. Uh, expose them to everything. Put them in swimming so they don't drown when they fall in a pool. Uh, expose them to all sorts of different things, and then as they get older, let them gravitate towards what they like to do, and then what their body is, uh, you know, what they what their body tells them they should be doing. Uh, so hey, expose. I, I, I say about pretty good conversation with uh, Rafael Ruiz, who's uh, one of our coaches and a good friend of ours, 
And Roth and I always have theorized this idea of like, you know, and I, I know people talk about it, but it's called uh, like physical and uh, uh, athletic problem solving. That putting your kids at a young age in positions where they have to solve athletic problems, yes. like for example, um, you know, just setting them up. Like my little girl is always like, "Hey, Dad, can you help me get up there?" I'm like, "No, go get it yourself." And they'll Absolutely. find a way to like monkey their way up onto the counter, or mm-hmm. you know, figuring out this problem solving. I think we're so um, adept at wanting to like help our kids to do everything that we don't really force them to figure out these um, athletic problems, or more importantly, how to like kind of navigate different things. So yep, for you're, me, you're dead uh, on. You know, and like, and then also you look at like hierarchy of athletes. I mean, what you know, what skills? And I know Roth and I just actually had this conversation like two days ago. Like the ability, like uh, swimming in terms of horizontal orientation, something like gymnastics that has multiple different types of orientation, and then obviously something that teaches some form of like body control. Whereas, you know, I, I uh, signed the girls up for uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, so they have a three to five year old class, and the girls are going to start taking that. Roth's got his little boy, and. Uh, Filipino combat systems because he's Filipino and they do a screma. So his little boy is three and is now has his own like little rubber knife and is working on all these different death strikes. So awesome. Uh, but like, you know, I, I think the problem is is that um, you know parents are just so apt to just well you know sports will figure it out but they'll figure it out in recess where the parents aren't doing anything active and we know from you know yeah. hundreds of years of research that kids learn by watching their parents do the movements. So like bringing the kids to the gym and like, you know, like I, I always love seeing the picture of Playtech and his boys or his son and all of his son's friends like trying to wrestle him at the gym. I mean, that actually makes my heart warm. But uh, like that type of situation and I think what, what happens is is that, you know, we're seeing not only the reason the kids are broken is because the parents are broken and yeah. it's a broken set of movement patterns that's going, you know, two and three generations up and I think all we're seeing now is like the, uh, you know, all all of our dysfunction being played out to us and kids. I mean, you know, and you guys know this as fathers. I mean, all of a sudden your kid develops something and you're like, where did that come from? And it kind of gives you introspectively to look at yourself. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, people always ask me, like, how do I get my wife to buy into this or how do I get my husband to buy into this? I'm like, lead by example. And that's so true. And that's where I got back to before talking about individual responsibility. This is not going to change from the top down. Um, it's going to change from the bottom up when people are like, we don't like the way this is going and we need to take, you know, take responsibility for ourselves and fix it. You know, just like I had to do with my health, like I destroyed myself. So I had to take responsibility to fix myself. And the the same thing is going to have to happen, you know, from the grassroots up. And, 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 and that's the unfortunate thing is a lot of the programs that are set up like these AAUs and, and these different, you know, baseball leagues and stuff like that are set up to profit and basically, you know, that they're not the best interest of the kids isn't isn't at heart. And so things are going to have to change from the grassroots up. And, and John, you're absolutely right. You just it's just a reflection of the home, you know, and that, that's unfortunate that uh, hopefully say, more people will wake up. I will say too, uh, you know, just in case anyone was wondering, it's it's not just uh, uh, fathers with little boys. Every every single night uh, after. We, our family ate dinner, I would move the coffee table out of the way and my dad would wrestle me and for probably like a good hour and we would just wrestle and play fight and stuff but that was like seriously like a nightly routine and I only now can I appreciate like the body awareness and having to really fight against resistance and like the, I don't know, it, it was fun but it was just also, it just, it had an element of like athleticism and uh, engagement and just you know, we weren't just like sitting there watching TV. It was, it was like, it was, it was game time. You know. 
Yeah. Uh, what's interesting is all the new psychological research shows that that's beneficial not only for the child, but it's uh, as if not more beneficial for adults who are undergoing a lot of stress at work, life, etc. Play, in addition mm -hmm. to what you were talking about earlier, meditation, play is one of the best stress relievers on the planet, and adults just don't play anymore. I see kids yeah. outside of my front yard, and I'm the only one that they're tackling because the other guys are on their, their smartphones. Sure. Yeah, uh, uh, Steve, I, I listened to a podcast recently about adult play and how you can um, incorporate it more in your regular life, and I, I was I think I told Luke about this, about how, uh, you know, the one big proponent for adult play had, uh, had he and his buddies all dress up in uh, uh, blue uh, collared shirts, like uh, polo shirts and khaki pants, and they all went to Best Buy and just walked around. And people people began to ask them questions where things were, and the Best Buy crew just thought it was hilarious. And so they were all giving instruction and stuff, and it was just like an adult form of maybe not physical play, but it was it was just a an, an element of kind of like taking yourself mentally away from whatever stressors were in your life and doing something that had absolutely no result whatsoever. So it's the idea of doing something where the the result is. Uh, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's insignificant. Yeah, it's um, it's like costume play. My boy comes home from school every day and reminds me that he's either Captain America or Superman, depending upon whatever day it is. <laughs> and like he, at some level, he kind of believes that he's a superhero, and it's it takes you out of reality. It's very similar in terms of the neurological processes uh, when you do that kind of uh, character play. It's very similar to the effects on the brain that meditation has. Um, because it alleviates that that attention, your brain's attentional network to what's happening in the past or what or what's happened in the past, what's going to happen in the future. Instead, right. you're in the now. You're, I mean, you're never more living in the moment than you are when you're in a character. Right. You know, right. Uh, Steve, uh, this, we, I'm sure your son will find it a little weird that he, um, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate him dressing up as a superhero. Does he mind that you cross dress? <laughs> John, that was a private conversation. <laughs> uh, no, but I'll, I'll, uh, on a serious note, um, I mean, it's not very serious, but uh, actually one of the most therapeutic things for me is actually coloring. So my daughters, everywhere we go, we bring them coloring books, and I sat down and I just grabbed the crayons and I'll start to color with them. Now my wife actually got me my own coloring book, so I have like a dinosaur's coloring book, and then I got my own crayons now so, too. So, so one thing that uh, one thing that people don't know about John actually is uh, one of the things that I learned about him that I thought was pretty fascinating was that he he was very interested in pottery and potting, and he actually has some mugs at the office that he made I think when he was in college, and then. Um, what I noticed over time is that he plays with a lot of putty at his desk. And so for, I think it was for Christmas, I got you a thing of putty because yours was basically looking like a cesspool of like, just like <laughs> disgusting hand filth. And so I got you some putty and you, you literally play with it every waking moment. Like, I mean, nonstop. Kelly, he worked hard to get all those germs in that whole putty. <laughs> I, yeah, that putty is so disgusting. I use it to stick things on the wall, so I'll put like pictures up with it. It's so bad. Yeah, but I don't, I'll be, uh, I mean, I'll be sure to bring you a coloring book in October, John. <laughs> like I'm, I'm telling you, dude. Like, uh, like I, it was so funny. Like my wife busted out the coloring stuff, and my wife she like uh, hands it to the kids and hands them my own and my own little box of crayons. And I was like, I got my own coloring books. And my and my one and like my daughters kind of like looked at it and they were like kind of scoffed. And then like a few seconds later, they were like, Hey, what is yours? You know, and then they started trying to rip pages out of mine, and I'm like, hey, this is Dad's coloring book. There's no scribbling all over mine. I color inside the lines. 
<laughs> so it's uh, it's been pretty good. And the thing that's been nice is we get to make uh, projects at home for the kids. And I um, we just went to parent-teacher conferences, and my uh, uh, their teacher was like, uh, "Have you been helping Jamie with some of her coloring projects?" I'm like, "No." <laughs> I'm like, "Who? What dad colors?" So, you are I you. Mean, just, you can't get I, on yeah, Steve I mean, Playtech about uh, you can't get on Steve Playtech about any um, sort of feminist uh, roles he might be playing because you're you're on the edge, my friend. No, uh, I think you know what, the, the, the day that you're, the day that you're too good to color, then I think something's wrong with you. And I have noticed something, and I wonder if this is a California thing, but people around <laughs> here seem like I'll tell you, <laughs> it probably is a California thing. But people around here are very like um, this kind of like uh, uh, I'm, you know, I'm the most important. Everything about me and my family is most important, and at the expense of everybody else. And so it's it's pretty interesting as uh, you know, as all these parents are sitting there just immersed in themselves and they look over and they see me coloring and went to dinner last night and it happened. So Well nobody's yeah. gonna nobody's gonna say shit to you either, you know. You're well, like nobody can even see the crown in your giant knit. I, I did have a seventy five year old woman give me a stink eye yesterday and then give me the finger. And, no way. Uh, Were you on, driving? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I was actually backing out of a parking spot and like the car next to me parked so close I had to take a couple stabs to get out in my truck. And obviously she had to wait and so, of course, she hangs her, her old, like, she kind of looked like an English bulldog uh, face out the window and is giving me stink eye. And I looked over and I was like, hey, I'm trying to back out. And doesn't say anything, just instantly gives me the finger. Wow. And I, like, looked at her and I was like, every ounce of me wanted to go rip her door off. And, you, uh, you, and you know what you need is a little meditation. Perhaps a, uh, perhaps a meditation pod would do you some good. Yeah, it, it probably would. Actually, I just booked an appointment for Luke and I because there's one right on Harbor about three miles to the gym. We might go over gotta, there right now. you got to be fucking kidding me. Yeah, it's called the Newport Float, and it's uh, it's literally right on Harbor, right down the street from the gym. And You could even ride a bike there. Yeah, you could ride a bike if you had to. And it's a 90-minute session, and you float in like 1,000 pounds of like Epsom salt, so you just float in there for 90 minutes. Wow, just dig the knife a little deeper. Thanks, John. Um, well, let's let's get back to our special guest. I do want to just touch on briefly. I know we have listed here that uh, that you roomed with Jim Wendler back in the day. Um, yes. Definitely a few questions about that, but I would like to say that I think uh, it's better to phrase that Jim Wendler roomed with you uh, as you are our special guest. Um, so Jim Jim Wendler was lucky enough to have you as a roommate. What was that like? Number one and number two. What kind of movies did you guys watch? Did you guys ever have, like, movie oh, night, date night? God almighty. And not um, only that, Callie, did did Jim influence your musical appreciation at all? I, I reckon he did, based on your music list. Yeah, I, I'm sure I had one of the most unique music lists you've probably ever gotten. Um, Jim is, uh, is a good friend, and he's a very interesting, he can be one of the angriest uh, people I've ever met in my life at the same time could be one of the nicest. I was, uh, uh, Jim was living in a one bedroom studio apartment when I crashed his house and I was only supposed to stay for like a week and ended up staying for like eight months. So I'm surprised he even answers my text messages anymore. But, um, you know, the best beginner approach possible, that pretty much came from Jim Windler. Jim is very well read. He's very intelligent, very articulate, and he always loves to play devil's advocate. So anytime I need to talk to somebody to kind of shake my head up a little bit, and Jim will always tell me when I'm full of shit as well, 
which is uh, what a true friend is for. Um, Jim's into all sorts of crazy movies. He really likes to read, uh, but he, he's into some he's into some really weird shit that that, that I just can't talk about. But uh, <laughs> he, literally, really weird shit. If you get what I'm talking about, shit. shit. I get it. I get yeah. it. So um, he, you know, he Jim. One time we were in Kroger, which is like kind of like Safeway. Two chicks, or, one Wendler. Oh my god! One one day we were in Kroger and we walk up and this lady you can tell she's having a really bad day and and Jim's all dressed up like you know the typical Wendler beard you know the whole deal and 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 Jim says to her how are you today are you doing okay and she said not really and he says it's okay it's gonna get better and he goes into this whole spiel about everything's gonna be fine and you look really nice today and I just looked at him and was like what the hell and he looked at me and he goes you know. It's always good to be nice to people because you never know that might you might be the one person that keeps them from blowing their fucking brains out. Wow. And I was like, okay, but that that's that's Jim, you know. Wow. So Jim is uh, Jim Jim was I I really enjoyed rooming with Jim. Um, he uh, he's a, a really good person, but he's he's very uh, his musical selection definitely rubbed off on me a little bit. I threw a little bit of the Southern Sludge into my selection. Uh, he he definitely helped me go down the right path as far as focusing on fundamentals and not getting too distracted by all the latest bells and whistles. Um, and uh, he got me into powerlifting. You know, I wouldn't be in Lexington now if it wasn't for Jim. So I really owe, uh, you know, I, I was between jobs and then I came out to Lexington just to help Jim with his first powerlifting meet. And I ended up staying in Lexington for, God, I've been here since 2001, so 13, 14 years now. And um, so I really owe you know, everything where I'm at in my, in my career right now, you know, to Jim getting me going in, in this direction. So Jim kind of started, started this whole thing for me. So if, if you could watch one inspirational or just, I don't know, um, entertaining movie for the rest of your life, what would it be? Well, I, I like Patton by George C. Scott and oh. the, Hunt for, the Hunt for Red October or probably I've watched them probably 10,000 times. Um, I'm kind well of well done. I'm wow. kind of a huge military dork historian. Uh, you know, my, my dog, one of my dogs' name is Rommel, and the other one's dog, uh, my other dog's name is Patton. So, um, I have a huge appreciation for military history, and so those are probably my two that I've probably watched ten thousand times each. Wow, that's great. I love Hunt for Red October. I have seen Patton probably maybe twice, but. I've definitely seen Hunt for Red October every time it like hits TBS. I'm like, I don't know, I can't not watch it. It's so good. Um, like the character of like George Patton, the person, is what fascinates me the most because he's such a, he's a lot like Jim. He's 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 two extremes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just such an intelligent guy, such a passionate guy, uh, a very caring guy, but a very it just it's just such a dichotomy of of, of people. Uh, people like that kind of fascinate me. So Patton is one of my favorite historical figures. Fantastic. Well, listen, where can people go to find out more information on you, what you do, your gym, and um, your your training philosophies? Um, Jim, JimLaird.com, G-Y-M. You can see what I kind of did there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the gym website. I do, I'm going to be doing a podcast on, on Kiefer's Body.io radio. Uh, I'll be getting that going uh, again soon. I'm doing a seminar in um, at my hometown. I haven't been home since 2001, Edmonton, Alberta, or 2002, with Dean Somerset. I'll be doing that. You can look up on deansomerset.com. You can look that up if you want to come out to that. Uh, in uh, October, uh, John, myself, Matt Lalonde, Rob Wolf, 
Um, Dave Warner. Who, who am I leaving out, John? Am I leaving a bit? Charles Mayfield. We're going to be doing a seminar in Atlanta, uh, which is going to be pretty awesome. I, I mean, I would pay to go to that just to hang out, not alone. Get to what speak. date is that? Because I was not privy to that. I, I don't know the exact date, but it's in October and it's in Atlanta. And it's uh, I am so fired up to be a part of that. I mean, just the group of people that are it's involved a good in that is oh, I mean, I'm humbled and surprised to be a part of it. It's uh, it's it's pretty awesome. I'm really looking forward to uh, to that to that week. What is that event called? The, the Cube Summit is that it, John? Is that what it's called? Yeah, it's uh, so it's called the Cube Summit, and it's uh, like like the way it all kind of started was. Uh, Charles and Rob and I have gotten together every couple, you know, a couple times a year uh, for the last bunch of years. Last time we drove up to Reno to hang out with Rob because uh, they just had their uh, most recent daughter, and then uh, you know, and we, our kids are all the same age. So we are looking for excuses to kind of get together and hang out, and then include the circle. And so Charles has a uh, big family farm over in Tennessee uh, that he invited us all to come out and go hunting and just kind of just get together with uh, all the families and, you know, just make a memory. And he thought it would be great if we could, you know, have everybody in town, if we could have kind of a roundtable summit, you know, uh, you know, meet up of these various different people that are all our friends. And, you know, Jim uh, is you know, new to our kind of clique, and we were excited to have him. So Charles hit me up and said, hey, you know, I'm thinking of uh, bringing everybody in, and we can, you know, do this summit and have some fun and then be able to go out to the farm and uh, hunt and sit around and, you know, eat and drink some moonshine. And as you guys know, Charles is a, a phenomenal cook, and you got Rob and then Dave Warner. And, I, you know, I went hunting with Rob and Dave Warner last year. And so it's just, uh, you know, a good time that we're going to do this fall, and it'll be a great opportunity to get all the kids together and just have a blast. So I'm pretty excited about it, and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, if there's any proceeds, I can donate my money to Wade's Army, which is really the the deal for me. And then also, uh, I don't necessarily know what I'm going to speak about, but I'd like to definitely get up and talk something about, you know, athletic development and, you know, the type of things that you can do to increase performance for not only yourself but the kids. And you know, um, you know, I know Matt's coming in to speak on nutrition, and you know, Dave Warner, former Navy SEAL, and the, you know, he and Rob started the first CrossFit affiliate, and obviously, you know, Rob will probably get up and talk about you know nicotine abuse and politics, and then, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Jim will talk about you know, uh, you know, various choices for men to make when trying to select high heels for you know for men in size 13. So it'll be good. Playtime. You should definitely check out that section on high heels. Oh my God, check it out because it's in my backyard. <laughs> so, but no, it, it, it's gonna be awesome, and I think we're gonna we're gonna have the opportunity to go hunt a little bit. So, um, and then we're, I'm on a email thread, so I just shot these guys those pictures of those big ass hogs I shot, and we've been kind of trading around some stuff. So it'll be good. We'll have a great opportunity to get out in the woods and fuck around a little bit. Wow. John, well, John, do you prefer like a spike heel or more of like a platform, like a broad platform heel? John's a wedge guy. Ah, uh, you know, I'm I'm into like more like uh, what are those big clunky uh, Steve Madden shoes? Steve Madden. Oh my God. Uh, yeah, you don't know Wolf of Wall Street, Kelly? I've seen it. I I I don't know, man. I when when you started talking about high heels, you sort of lost me. You guys have more terms uh, for it than I was aware of, so I try to avoid them at all costs. What are you talking about? I've, I've seen you all hookered up and, you know. You I have not seen me. You have never seen me in high heels. I think I have. No. 
more of like a horseshoe type of guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my it's God. like seven horseshoes all welded together. There, there it is. I, I got small feet, okay? It's not my fault. And I I tend to prance around when I go from place to place. So. <laughs> keep talking. Well, uh, I think that officially does it for all the pertinent information. Um, Jim, is there anything... I'm cutting all this shit out. Yeah, Jim, is there anything else that you want to add? Any other resources you want to uh, touch not, on for people? Not not that I'm aware of. Uh, you probably want to check out the Postural uh, Restoration Institute. Make sure you are well-rested before you go there because it will bend your brain in ten different directions. Got it. Uh, and make sure that you uh, don't drive yourself off into a cliff after you visit the site because it will... It will bend your brain uh, immensely. Luckily, I have a very smart physical therapist that works here at the gym that could decipher that stuff for me and figure out how to make it uh, applicable to our population. But uh, I just wanted to thank you guys for for making my afternoon. What a what an awesome time this was! And it's always always good to laugh and and to talk shop with people that are passionate about what they do. And and I don't get to do that very often. That's one of the reasons I'm looking forward to October. Well, it's our pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining us, and we definitely look forward to uh, recapping after the, the summit that you guys are doing in October. That'll be a fun time to recap and figure out um, exactly who wore what, apparently. So, All right, guys. Uh, that's it for Power Up Radio. Bye. Thanks a lot, Jim. Thanks a lot. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. If you want to learn more about Jim and his upcoming seminars, head to his website, jimlaird.com. That's G-Y-M-L-A-I-R-D.com. Stay tuned to hear more about the October Meeting of the Minds, a.k.a. the Cube Summit in Atlanta, Georgia. Don't forget to swing by our online store at shop.powerathletehq to rock the latest Power Athlete apparel, including the new Eat the Week shirt. Join us next week when our guest will be Rob Maximus McDonald. The former MMA champ now helps run the online training resource jimjones.com. Find out why he thinks having a dad bod is indicative of a culture that is simply okay with settling. And because it's topical, I leave you with this quote from General George S. Patton. It's the unconquerable soul of a man, not the nature of the weapon he uses, that ensures victory. Until next week. Bye.